Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 27, where we not only heard an English translation of Maria Melgar's original police statement, but we also compared that to the trial transcripts and found out that over the course of five years, between the time she gave this statement and the time she testified, her memory had warped to include details that she never actually saw. In this follow-up, we're going to talk about just how significant that was. All right, let's get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, our first question comes from listener Richard. I noticed that Deputy Garcia basically suggested to Maria that she only saw the leg bindings. Could this have confused her and made her doubt what she saw during those first hours after finding her brother-in-law dead? I don't think so. I mean, someone else was reading the transcripts, and they said something similar to me. They said, well, of course, you know, Garcia suggested she didn't see it. But what you have to look at is the fact that when that happened, that was the second time around. So, and, and remember, they interviewed Maria... I think, gosh, now I'm questioning myself, but they interviewed Maria, I believe, before they interviewed Herman. I'll have to go back and check those times. So they they literally knew nothing at that point, not a, not anything at all about the crime scene or what happened. And the first time that Maria went through uh, her recounting of the events, she only talked about cutting the leg bindings off. And so when she was going through it a second time, which it was really was proper interview protocol, he had her kind of repeated, he reconfirmed some things. And at that point, I'm sure Garcia, not knowing exactly what happened, thought, well, if only her legs were bound, why didn't she untie them with her free hands? And so to me, that that read as a as a as a follow up question. You know, she had she walked through it, only mentioned the legs the second time through. She's only mentioning the legs again. And he asked, were her hands bound? And that's when Maria says, no, I wouldn't or I wouldn't know. I don't know. You'd have to ask my husband because I when I saw her, her only her legs were bound. So. No, I didn't. There's definitely times when suggestibility like that will cause some misinformation to come out in an interview, but I don't think that's what happened in this case. 
All right, and Solomon says, can we hear the 911 calls made by the neighbors and family members? We cannot. Um, and we, we covered this earlier, but just to refresh everyone's memory, Corazal was supposed to order the 911 calls to be preserved. So they are automatically stored for a period of time, whether that's seven days or 30 days. I don't remember what the amount of time is, but then they, they recycle them through the uh, in the dispatch center. You know, it's just a matter of storage space, um, you know, digital storage space that they have. Uh, and so what's supposed to happen is if a case comes up where the 911 tapes need to be preserved, the lead investigator is supposed to request that. And amongst all of the other things that he didn't do, Carlzall never did that. The tapes were deleted, or the recordings, I should say. They're not tapes, but the recordings were deleted, and now they're lost forever, so we don't have them. Listener Michelle says, I'm very disappointed in myself if I miss such a large detail, but wasn't Jim found lying prone? In the interview, Maria stated he was in a sitting position. I'm confused here. Can you clarify? Yeah, no, he wasn't lying prone. He was in a, I would call it more of a slumped position, uh, and you can hear that Maria was struggling a little bit to describe it accurately, but yeah, he was he was sitting down, leaning against the back wall of the closet, but he was slumped down a little more than that. You know, so his his butt was a little bit further away from the wall than if you were just sitting up against the wall, but he was in a kind of a seated, slumped position. This one comes from an anonymous listener. I just binged season six in the last few weeks, and one thing I haven't heard mentioned is any theories on why Jim started fighting back. I vaguely remember Liz mentioning that if someone tried to rob her, she would give them whatever they wanted and cooperate. Do you think it's possible that Jim was cooperating in the beginning, but then heard whoever was tying up Sandy freaking out because she started seizing? Yeah, we we have talked about this before. It may, may be where you haven't caught up to yet, but, and of course it's just theory. So yeah, I'll give you my personal theory, and that's all it is, or hypothesis, is that based on the fact that they started to tie Jim up and maybe maybe got completely tied up, there's some blood spatter stuff that we'll probably talk about later, to me indicates that he was cooperating at least for some period of time. Uh, and based on what Liz has told us about Jim's personality, I think that that's probably likely what happened. I'm guessing that uh, at some point he felt that Sandy's life was being threatened or her personal safety or health was being threatened. And you know, whether it's you know them freaking out because she's having a seizure or if they're yelling at her, threatening her or whatever it was. Um, but again, that's just a theory, but that's what I think happened. Lindsay says, I've had experiences with a few automatic garage doors that I've tried to, quote, run under when leaving. The doors often have sensors that will automatically stop the closure when it senses movement. It's a safety mechanism. I know you believe it had to be all the way open, but if the intruders hit the close button and attempted to run under, as I've tried many times, if the door had sensors, it could have stopped dead as they ran under it. This could point toward the intruder theory. What do you think? No, I mean, with my experience, maybe there's different doors that operate differently, but I know my personal garage door and, and garage door openers that I've had at other homes where I've lived, if you break the sensor, it doesn't just stop the door. It stops it and sends it all the way back up. So I think it, it could be an indication that that's exactly what happened, that they tried to hit the garage door opener and run out of there, uh, but they caught it. But that that would cause exactly what we see, which is the door all the way up to the top. Christina says, when Maria said that they were not Jehovah's Witnesses and only Sandy and Jim were, wouldn't that have blown Barnett's theory of motive? After all, they were so serious about their religion, why would they have invited people over who were not Jehovah's Witnesses? I mean, yeah, to an extent, but I mean, that's that's par for the course. I mean, the, the whole theory of motive based on the Jehovah's Witness religion, I don't even know if there's anybody out there that still believes that's even a possibility. Herman and Maria are family, you could make that argument. But more so than that, 
two of Sandy's best friends were not Jehovah's Witnesses. And these were people that are not family. They're not related. They do stuff together all the time. They would travel together. They would go on vacations together. They would talk on the phone every day. And they were not witnesses. So, you know, the fact that Herman and Maria aren't just, I guess, is just kind of icing on the cake or whatever. But no, I mean, that, that, that whole theory is total BS, in my opinion. Marlana says, and I hope I got your name right. If we accept that Sandra was in the closet for 15 hours, how did that amount of time come to be the accepted amount? Well, it has to do with a lot of things. So, you know, originally that was based on Sandy's testimony that whatever happened to Jim, whether it was her or an intruder, happened sometime around midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and she was found about 4.30 in the afternoon. But then later in, in one of our earlier episodes when we were covering the, the medical evidence, I think that we locked down a pretty solid range for time of death between, I think we said, if I remember correctly, 11 and 1 a.m., 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., and that was based on a lot of factors, known factors, one big one being uh, that we know what time Jim ate, we know what he ate based on receipts, and we know what his stomach contents were and how long they had digested. There was lividity and rigor mortis. When we add all that in, we can pretty confidently put Jim's time of death between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., somewhere in that range. Uh, and then we know that Sandy was found in the closet at 4.30, so the ex- that's the accepted range if you believe Sandy's innocent, that she went in about that time and got out about that time. It was roughly around 14, 15 hours. But then, of course, if you believe she's guilty, then it doesn't matter because you know she could have went into the closet 10 minutes before they came over to get her. So who knows? But based on my investigation and my opinion, I think that 15-hour estimate is pretty solid. Lauren says, I think all these interviews with the Melgars have been fascinating, but my head keeps spinning with all these false memories and not remembering things correctly. Can we get some sort of official sequence of events? Yeah, so based on the initial police interviews, my interviews with Herman and Maria, their trial testimony, my interview with Marissa, my conversations with her and with Gerson and with Monica, the best I can come up with, which I believe is accurate, and there's actually Abby Scott that does some uh, Crime Tracer videos for us. There's a YouTube video on this. If you look up, you know, the episode was called, or if you want to listen back to it in our episode La Noche, uh, I think it was titled. But essentially, they went to the door, they knocked, no one answered, Marissa tried the door, it was locked, they were going to leave, Herman said, let me check around back, he went around back, No one was. he went into the backyard, through the gate, into the backyard, looked, no one was there, came back, the garage door was open, he walked through the garage door, into the house, opened the door, they all came in, and then they started calling for Jim and Sandy, and at that point, they heard Sandy yelling help from the back. Herman takes off towards the back of the house to figure out where the voice is coming from. I believe Maria was behind him. Maria, when she was passing through the bedroom, I don't know if she made it to the closet with Herman initially or not, I I think that she likely saw Jim's, based on everything she said, uh, especially back then, that she saw Jim's feet, and she peeled off and went to check on Jim. Herman went to, to Sandy. He, While he is moving the chair away from the door and helping her out, Maria looks at Jim, realizes that he's dead. She runs back outside, and at this point, Monica and Marissa, I think, are outside still, because she went outside, or maybe not, maybe I think they're in the house. But she goes outside, tells the neighbor to call 911. During That's right. During that time, Monica and Marissa go back towards Herman. Monica sees Jim's feet. Her and Marissa go and they look and see Jim. All While all of that's happening, Herman is trying to get Sandy's arm bindings off. 
Then Maria comes back into the house, goes back to the bathroom, finds Herman, who had at that point already cut off the arm bindings. He hands her the scissors, tells her to cut the leg bindings off, and then he takes off and runs out front looking for Jim. At this point, Monica and Marissa had seen Jim's body there in the living room. So while Maria is cutting Sandy the rest of the way loose, Herman then comes back into the house, finds Monica and Marissa. He says, have you seen Jaime? And I think he said Monica pointed back towards the bedroom. Then Herman goes back, finds Jim's body, while Maria is now trying to calm Sandy down and trying to keep her away from Jim's body. And then Sandy eventually breaks loose, sees Herman there with Jim's body, Maria following. Sandy checks his pulse, and that's where she just collapses and starts crying. And then Herman left. So I think that as clear as mud as that was, I believe that's what happens. They have a lot of different moving parts all moving simultaneously. But the order of people that found Jim was Maria found him first. She goes outside. Monica and Marissa find him. They go back to the living room. And then Herman goes outside, comes back in, talks to Monica and Marissa. They tell him where he's at. Then Herman finds him. And then Sandy is the last one to find him. It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Barbara says, what's the status of potential leads from the GoFundMe donation? Nothing yet, so that that process is ongoing. So when I was in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, I met with Liz. We set up, so we have we have to get the money from the GoFundMe into a bank account. And actually, it stopped being able to take donations for a short period of time because you like after thirty days, you have to set up withdrawals. And so we went and set up a joint bank account and added the third person that we talked about. uh, That's going to be kind of the neutral arbiter of the of the of the bank account. Then after I got back here. I set up the withdrawal. To, I think there's there's a little over $10,000 in the account now. Set up the withdrawal for that to go in. Liz is depositing her money. I'm depositing my money in there. So we're sitting at, I believe right now, around $27,000, $26,000, And so once all that, once that fund is completely established, which we're, we're, by the time you hear this, we should have all the money in the account. We're ready to go, uh, which means with that amount, I believe we're going to offer a $20,000 reward and then use the rest of the money to market and advertise for it. Uh, and so all of that should be happening here in the next few weeks. It's going to be tricky because, as I said last week, I'm going to be on the road a lot. Um, but we're going to get that going. But no leads have come from it so far because we haven't put the official reward out yet, partially due to the fact that we didn't know how much we could offer until we had the money. So we have it now, and we're going to start putting the reward uh, fund out there, and hopefully we'll get some we'll get something moving on that. Bree says... I'm sure there are victims' rights involved here, but has anyone reached out to the victims of the previous Kingwood case? It would be interesting to see if there was any nuances or small details that could corroborate our case that might not be within their case file or mentioned in their trial. Yes, as a matter of fact, 
I have personally spoken with uh, one of the victims, and that person has agreed to do an interview. We haven't nailed down a schedule yet, but I spent about 35 minutes on the phone with one of them just two nights ago, and it's really, really fascinating, and I guess all I can tell you is going to blow your mind, and as soon as we get that scheduled, that's one of the things, one of the episodes we're going to put out while I'm traveling, but we just have to lock down a time to get on the phone and record the interview, but yes, that's coming. And I'll say this, yes, there are some significant similarities in the two cases. Denise says, I'm still driven nuts by the person or man with a camera, as Herman and Maria were going in and out. Was it a neighbor? When will you cover this glaring part of the story? We kind of covered what we can cover. So all we know is, and it wasn't even Herman and Maria, it was just Herman, and kind of in passing when I was interviewing him, said that when, I, when he was on his way out of the house, he saw a man with a camera around his neck. And that was it. I mean, he couldn't really give me a description. It was just something that kind of popped into his memory that he had a vague memory of, but nothing specific. Nobody else saw a man with a camera. And so there's, I mean, there's nothing else unless someone that was there that night comes forward and says, yes, I was the person with the camera, or I, I also saw the person with the camera. That's, there's really nothing more we can do with it. It's, it's very, very interesting and intriguing, but there's, there's nothing else we can do with it. All we know is Herman says that he saw a man with a camera. Lynn says, what are the repercussions for law enforcement for not fully investigating a crime scene or following up on leads? Are there standard procedures they need to follow? Are they held accountable if they do not investigate thoroughly? I would be held accountable if I did not follow proper procedures at my job. Yeah, and basically it's the same thing. So the ramifications for not doing that or the consequences for not doing their job properly should come from their boss. And of course, Corazal was already fired for another reason, but basically the, the sheriff when you have, you know, lead investigators and detectives working for you that don't do a damn thing, and again, I, it maybe I don't know, maybe people don't agree with this, but I, I find that hard to believe that anyone, even if they believe Sandy's guilty, can say that this was a reasonable, thorough investigation. If it even meets the minimum standards, I mean, it's it's insane. All of the stuff they didn't do, so so the consequences for that should have come from their employer. It's it's really hard in court to try to make some kind of a case that, you know, I was convicted because the cops didn't do their job. I mean, that's kind of what everybody says, and, and sometimes it's the case and sometimes it's not. In this case, we, we can certainly say that we don't know the truth. The reason we're still talking about this case, though we're talking about it, and Dateline NBC's talking about it, and ABC's 2020, and Deadly Women, and, and all the different places that are talking about this case, the reason we're still talking about it is because they did a shit job, and we don't have answers. Whether you believe Sandy's innocent or guilty, there are huge unanswered questions that are only there because the police officers, the detectives, didn't do their job. But the consequence for that should come from their employer. So you would, th you would think that if their boss sees this work, there would be disciplinary actions because of that, because it's also costing them a whole lot of bad press. Molly says, what, if anything, is the police's explanation for no bloody clothes or blood on Sandra? Also, what's their explanation for no cuts on her? How could she have done this without some sort of injury? There is no possible explanation for it. And of course, that's my opinion. But in my opinion, there's no way that she could have done this without being covered in injuries. Lots of, of bruising and cuts on her hands and, and scratches on her body. The thing is, is, as you'll see in this week's episode, there's a really good example of a contrast between a non-law enforcement person testifying and a law enforcement person testifying about the exact same thing in this case. I'm not talking about in general law enforcement testimony. I'm talking about specifically 
this case, you'll see that they they just all march the party line. You know, it it just it just pretend that these things don't exist. Pretend there's not a problem with their theory, and knowing that when they go into court wearing a uniform, even though it's not supposed to, does have a significant impact on the jurors. And that's exactly, in my opinion, what happened in this case because the theories they're presenting, the fact that they're ignoring items just like this is ridiculous. And if they weren't wearing a uniform, the jury would have never freaking bought it. Mara says, I missed if this was covered already, but did the victims at any other home invasions in the area have their arms tied? Yes, several of them did. uh, And specifically the one we mentioned earlier, the Kingwood home invasion, uh, they were absolutely tied up by the the arms. And that's what we're going to get into more details about that. But yeah, this is this is not uncommon. There was a string of home invasions and burglaries just like this, minus the person being killed. Jennifer has a few questions. First, how did you come across this case and decide to pursue it? The case was sent to me by Helena Rose, who's Liz Rose's sister-in-law. Uh, she sent in the initial email and wanted me to take a look at the case. And you know, we were we were filtering through other cases, of course, I put out that we're looking for new cases. And I decided to take it because, you know, there's a whole screening process we go through. And then there's a a next step of that, the ones that make it through the screening process. And the big thing for me, as I've said many, many, many times, if a wrongful conviction has occurred, you should be able to figure out how it happened relatively quickly or how it potentially happened relatively quickly or we won't take it. And it's it's not because it's it's hard work or anything, but there's, there's patterns. There's patterns that happen. You know, if you look on our, which by the way, if for anybody else, if you have cases that you want us to look at, go on our website, uh, truthandjusticepod.com. There's a, a link to click to submit a case, and it's a Google Doc, and you'll see the questions on there. Was there a jailhouse snitch, or were there leads that were not followed? Uh, and, and essentially, we're looking for, did the police have blinders on? What was it that pointed people towards this case and caused them to not look elsewhere? And so as part of that process in this one, very quickly, we could see the police definitely, there wasn't a jailhouse snitch, obviously, but you could see that there was the police had blinders on. They immediately thought it was Sandy. And then when I looked at the basic elements of the case, what was available publicly, you could see it is highly unlikely that she did this. And then, but, but, you know, had I looked and see and saw uh, the police and, you know, investigated every lead and everything pointed back to Sandy, but there's a complete lack of physical evidence. The theory doesn't make sense physically based on how she was in the closet. That didn't add up. So there was a lot of factors that went into our decision to cover this case. Next, she says, do you think at this point you have found any evidence that would aid in Sandra's exoneration? I do. Unfortunately, where she's at in her process right now, she's in direct appeal. So those are all constitutional issues. And we can't get into uh, evidence to claim actual innocence until after that phase. but. We're getting there. I, I can't say that we have a smoking gun or anything like that, but I'll say that we're getting there, and uh, I, I think we're we're close to finding the evidence to prove that she is actually innocent. Her last question, do you think there is any possibility of her guilt? Zero. All right. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Alan has a few questions. 
if it's accepted Jim was going for the gun in the closet and he wasn't stabbed until he was in the closet, is it possible it wasn't Jim that put the transfer blood on the shirt in front of the gun? Is it possible the attacker reached up after stabbing Jim to see what Jim was reaching for and failed to find the gun? If so, and it is agreed the attacker would have damaged their hands during the attack, then surely their DNA would be on the shirt as well as Jim's. It's possible, but I don't think so. And, you know, I've done a lot more work on the, the blood pattern analysis. I've consulted more experts on it. And honestly, I think that there's a lot more information there than was presented at trial and has been presented since then. So let's go back to the things that I think that Chelsea Rossi got right. I don't think there's anybody that argues with the fact that there's cast-off patterns. There's two cast-off patterns that go from up and to the left, like from Jim's right shoulder up into the left which as we talked about was an indicator that it could be a left-handed assailant, someone stabbing with their left hand. Also, she said that she doesn't think that he was attacked anywhere but inside the closet because you can see the she believes that the, the blood spatter that's on the chair that was by the bed was arterial spray, that, and the only arterial wound that he had was on his right hand. Uh, and you can see the drip marks from that cut are on the closet floor, not outside, which means he was standing probably in the doorway of the the entry the doorway into the closet when he got that massive cut between his right index finger and thumb uh, and I agree with that but again there's another indicator there that we're dealing with someone that had a knife in their left hand because if they're facing each other and they're stabbing with their left hand Jim's blocking with his right he cuts his right hand because they're face to face now what was never mentioned what what I've noticed and some other listeners even put some of this on there one thing is I've talked about the fact that there's blood spatter on Jim's shins and ankles and the phone cords that are binding his ankles that all match, which indicates that he was tied up before he was stabbed. Now, Rossi didn't want to talk about that, neither did Barnett at trial, but I still maintain that view. But someone else recently on the fan page uh, noticed that when Jim's body was moved, there's no blood pattern under... Remember he had the um, the the plastic wrapped between his legs? Yeah. Yeah, and it was like, why would that be there? Obviously, that was put on after he was dead. But that plastic has blood all over it. But when he moved, uh, when they moved his body, there's a, a clear void in the blood pattern on the carpet there uh, mm -hmm. where the plastic was, which again means his ankles were tied. He was wrapped up in that plastic before he was stabbed. You know, so, somehow that was that was tangled up in his legs before he got stabbed, uh, which, which, again, makes sense. You know, if he was tied up and he tried to get away and, and that plastic just happened to be there as a dry cleaning bag, I think, that he got wrapped up in his leg. But it certainly wasn't added later. Uh, so so we're more indicators that that the attack happened in the closet and after he was tied, which, again, by the way, could be an indicator that he was tied up. And as we said earlier, was complying and then got up, which means so he stood up while his ankles were still bound. And the way the rope around his, uh, that's kind of draped over him, I think that's a good indicator that he was completely tied up with that rope, and he was left there while they were ransacking the house, and he got himself untied. He got the top binding off of his chest or arms or whatever it was, and then tried to get up. That's when the when they he encountered the, the attackers, something like that. I mean, I'm speculating there. But... Also, as Rossi had mentioned, there's drip patterns on the floor. And if you look at the crime scene photos that we have on our website, you'll see there are there, there is what looks like projected patterns on the file cabinet. Which So if he gets stabbed face-to-face, -face, he's facing out of the closet in his right hand, cuts that artery. It spatters out onto the chair. It drips down underneath him. Now he turns to go to the back of the closet, let's say to get his gun. 
Now his right hand is on the side of the file cabinet. You can see the projected patterns along the file cabinet. You can see the drip patterns on the floor. And then if you're looking at those crime scene photos, look at the back wall. So, so we see where we have the transfer blood on the shirt sleeve right in front of the gun. But look under that on the wall. And what you'll see is there is projected, which oftentimes is arterial bleed. There's projected blood patterns on the wall that are coming in a, from, from an upward location. They're going downward into the wall, which indicates Jim is standing up. So if we're still talking about that cut in his hand. So he gets stabbed in the doorway. He turns around, spatters blood onto the file cabinet, drips the blood along the floor towards the back of the closet as he's reaching up with his right hand. And then, and then couple that at the same time with the closet rod that has the transfer, the wraparound transfer pattern further to the left. So I think that's his left hand that's bloody from grasping at the injury on his right hand. He grabs that closet rod. He's unstable, right, because his ankles are tied. He's reaching up for the gun, which we see the drip pattern, and we see that downward projected blood pattern on the wall on the right side, which is still consistent with that injury on his right hand. And then we see where we have the transfer patterns on the shirt sleeves in front of the gun. So I think that at some point he fights back. He sustains the injury to his right hand standing in the doorway. He cuts it. He turns. He goes back for his gun. He grabs the closet rod with his left hand. He reaches for the gun with his right. And I think that, so we have those injuries to the back of his head, right? The skull fracture. I think as he was reaching for that gun is when he was hit on the head and knocked down. And, you know, they, they attacked him from behind. And that's why you see that he grabbed the shirt sleeves, but he didn't get to the gun. Then he hits the ground. And then the attack goes on from there. And that's when we see the attacker, who I believe was holding a knife in their left hand, start stabbing him. And I think there may have even been two people in there because we have the blunt force and the stabbing. And you say, well, they got two hands, a knife in one hand, a fist in the other, or holding a gun, they're pistol whipping the other, whatever it is. But that's not how that works with with Jim's fighting back. So one of their hands is going to have to be used to try to block Jim from hitting them and and, and try to control Jim's hands or wrists. So I think their right hand was trying to control Jim. Their left hand was making the stabs. But as far as going back to the original question about the gun, uh, that's possible. But the other evidence, if you follow that blood trail, the projected blood trail and the drip pattern from the doorway back to the wall, up the wall, and where that transfer blood is on those shirt sleeve, I think, in my opinion, all of the evidence points towards that was Jim who grabbed the shirt sleeves. Okay, and our last question comes from Liz. On the podcast, we heard Maria Melgar's witness statement in which she said she did not see Sandy's hands tied and her trial testimony in which she described helping to free Sandy's hands. We heard these back to back, so the differences were glaring to us listeners. My question is how was it handled at trial? Was it pointed out to the jury that her testimony differed from her initial witness statement? Was the jury even aware of her initial witness statement? Wondering how much of an impact it made in the jury's mind regarding the validity of her testimony. This was a huge blow, and I, I can't stress that enough. And I, and I don't think, just based on social media, I don't think everyone quite absorbed how big of a deal this is. So for starters, to answer the questions, the initial uh, recorded statements and those transcripts are not part of the record. They were not submitted in as evidence. So no, the jury wasn't aware of their initial statements. And the jury was never made aware of the conflicts in Maria's original statement and her testimony. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure that her attorneys had noticed it. You know, so so how this would have worked is the attorneys would have met with Maria and Herman to prep them for trial. That's common, but both sides do that. And I'm sure Maria probably told them, 
exactly what she said on the stand, you know, or that you know that, that she saw it and everything. And I, I don't know. I, I I can't imagine they would have done. They would have put her on the stand like that had they realized that her original police statement contradicted that. But so the ramifications. So as I mentioned, I spoke with a juror who specifically told me that both Herman and Maria demonstrated how Sandy was bound, and they both did it differently, and they had to figure out which one was correct. So already, that's a problem. And again, it's nothing that Maria did on purpose. It just, it, it happened. It happens, and it did happen, that, that her, her memory shifted over this time. And, it, and it, there's no question that that happened. You can see, you can read it, and you can hear it between the two, uh, the trial testimony and her initial statement. But so already, we have the jurors that are trying to decide which way she was bound. Now, think about the consequences here. Had Maria not demonstrated incorrectly showing Sandy being bound with her wrists, with her arms pointed down and her wrists together, then the jury would only know that she was bound the way she was actually bound, as testified to by the only person on this planet that actually knows how she was bound, which is Herman, with her arms parallel to each other, they would realize that that's, I mean, I can't say impossible because I've seen people that have that have been able to do it, you know, healthy, spry people that can manipulate their arms in that way and have been able to tie themselves up in that manner. Uh, but it's not likely and it's not easy and certainly not for a woman in Sandy's condition to do that. And that's all they would know. But it's bigger than that even because you've heard me complain about the fact that Colleen Barnett presented evidence in her closing arguments or presented her closing arguments with stuff that wasn't in trial. And that's true. And that is not allowed. So going back to the blood spatter, remember she says, Jim sitting in the chair and the attack starts here, but there was nothing in evidence to support that. But the bigger issue is remember what we've heard the jury foreman say in his interviews, that at the end of the day, the prosecutor's theory made the most sense. Maria's testimony showing Sandy with her arms pointed down and her wrists together opened the legal door for Colleen Barnett to do a demonstration, the demonstration she did in closing arguments, and we've seen her do on TV, where she took the looped little scarf and twisted it around and, and showed the jury how easy it is to tie yourself up. So again, back that up. The jury says, the jury foreman has said in an interview that with all the lack of evidence and the circumstantial stuff, at the end of the day, it was the prosecutor's theory that made the most sense. And the prosecutor's theory was based on Maria demonstrating how Sandy was bound, and she demonstrated it incorrectly. And the fact of the matter is, she never actually saw it. This is a big, big, big deal. And I don't know what we can do about it. It's something that I'm hoping the attorneys can do something with, but I kind of doubt it because the original statement didn't come into evidence. And it wasn't perjury because Maria, it has to be knowingly falsely testifying for it to be perjury. And I don't think that's the case. But ultimately, this absolutely did, in my opinion, change the outcome of this trial. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. 
Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>